so today we are beginning something that's pretty big. It will be an ongoing 10-part sermon series on the many aspects of stewardship. And because of holidays, though, and and other special events, we won't be doing this series in 10 straight weeks. There are going to be some gaps in there, but we should have this all wrapped up by early next year. And since I've got the first sermon in the series, I thought it was important to lay a quick foundation of what biblical stewardship is. What, What does that mean? Because oftentimes when we hear that word stewardship, we instantly just think about money, right? Stewardship and money. But that is only one of 10 aspects of stewardship. So the English word stewardship comes from the Greek word oikonomos, oikonomos. You want to learn some Greek with me here this morning? Can, Can you say that with me? I'll say it one more time and then I'll ask you to say it with me. So the word is oikonomos. One, two, three, oikonomos. There you go. You learned some Greek. And it, if you can read that, that top orange one, then you can read in Greek. You might notice it looks a little bit different. Um, but the English transliteration is under it. And the definition for this word is as follows. A house distributor or a manager or overseer an employee in that capacity, by extension, a fiscal agent or a treasurer. But if you're looking at it in a more figurative sense of the word, it's a preacher, a preacher of the gospel. So in a Christian sense, God as creator has given all of humanity, that's you and me, the position of manager over his creation. Wow. And so through this 10-part series, we will be looking at what Pastor Robert Quintana from the Wilberton and Salisaw SDA Church calls the 10 T's of stewardship, the 10 T's of stewardship. And they are truth, time, testimony, technology, territory, treasure, talents, tribe, tongue, and temple. So These are all sermon topics that you can expect over the coming months. And next Sabbath, Chongo will be talking to us about time. But for now, we're looking at truth. How can we be good stewards of truth in a biblical sense of the word? We've looked at what stewardship means. But now I think it's also important that we take a moment and and look at this word truth. Our English translation of the word truth, it comes from the Greek word aletheia, aletheia. Can you all say that with me? One, two, three, aletheia. This word appears 110 times in the New Testament alone, 110 times. And Jesus himself had quite a bit to say about it too. John 4, 24, he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus here, he's teaching that truth is an important aspect of worship. 
When we grasp this truth that Jesus spoke about, it will lead us into an attitude of worship. And he also believed that there was liberating power associated with this truth. John 8, 32, he said, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Humanity has been enslaved by sin and legalism. Sin tells us that we don't need to be set free. Nothing is holding us in bondage. Legalism tells us that we can set ourselves free. We don't need God. We don't need Jesus. We don't need anybody's help. We can do it on our own. But truth sets us free from both of these ditches. And so this truth that Jesus speaks of brings us into a state of worship, and it sets us free from our bondage. But that's not all. It also empowers us to live a new life. John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So this truth that Jesus is talking about, it sanctifies us. And here, Jesus is using the Greek word hagiatso, hagiatso, which which means to consecrate or dedicate to God, to purify, to cleanse, to renew. That's the power of truth. And Jesus also mentioned that that God's word is truth. What is this word? What is this word? John tells us right there in the the opening chapter of his gospel, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So who is this word? It's Jesus. Jesus is the word. Jesus is truth. And even he himself said so quite plainly in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus came to paint a beautiful picture, a beautiful portrait of who God is and what his character is like. And over the past couple years, I've grown quite fond of a certain saying, a certain statement. I even, I have it written on a sticky note and, and stuck on my desk in my home office. And it simply reads, there is a God and he looks like Jesus. There is a God and he looks like Jesus. Over and over through his ministry, Jesus was telling us and telling people that he came in order to show us the Father, who he is, what he is about. But now, maybe you're still wondering about what the truth is with with a capital T. You know, as as Christians and as Seventh-day Adventists, we hold a number of, of teachings and doctrines that we believe to be truth. We believe the Sabbath 
is on Saturday. We believe that the dead sleep until Christ comes. We believe that that second coming will be literal. We believe in the Trinity. We believe that hell is not eternal. We believe that there is a sanctuary in heaven. We believe in the spirit of prophecy. We believe that God is creator and that he has people on this earth who have been given a specific mission. And we believe that there is a great controversy raging all around us. These are things that we believe to be true. But are they the truth with a capital T? Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, believed that there was a hierarchy of truth. While all truth is important, one truth was more important than all others. In the book Gospel Workers, on page 315, she wrote this, the sacrifice of Christ as atonement for sin is the great truth around which all other truths cluster. She believed that the cross was the central pillar of our faith and that every other Bible truth from Genesis going all the way to Revelation, needed to be studied in light of what was shining forth from the cross of Calvary. In other words, the good news is the most important news. The gospel truth is the greatest truth. And I find it interesting that Paul, in his writings, he spent a lot of time talking about truth. Remember, we, we saw that this word appears 110 times in the New Testament, and many of those times are within the writings of Paul. The word and the concept are littered throughout his epistles. But we also find verses like this one, Colossians 1.5, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Notice here that he isn't just talking about truth. He is talking about the truth, and he makes that point distinctly. He goes on to use this specific terminology, the truth, 11 more times in his writings. And when he does, it is always in connection with the gospel the good news of God's love. And it's the same with Ellen White. Her statement about the gospel being the truth, it wasn't just some one-off comment. It wasn't just an offhand comment. She had much to say on this matter. Like in volume six of the testimonies where she wrote, never should a sermon be preached. Now, your ears should perk up here. I know as, as, as a preacher, as a pastor, my ears perk up when I hear that. Never should a sermon be preached or Bible instruction in any line be given without pointing the hearers to the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. She's quoting John 1.29. Every true doctrine makes Christ the center. Every precept receives force from his word. Wow, if any teaching or doctrine or belief is to be counted as truth, it needs to be 
rooted in the great truth of the gospel. Christ crucified to save sinners because he loves us so much. In a manuscript release from 1890, she wrote this. There is one great central truth to be kept ever before the mind in the searching of scriptures, Christ and him crucified. Every other truth is invested with influence and power corresponding to its relation to this theme. So all of our doctrines, all the truth that we have, when we connect it to the gospel, when we root it in Christ, it gives more power, better understanding to all of those truths. In other words, to preach the Sabbath or the law or the sanctuary or the judgment or the 2300-day prophecy or even stewardship devoid of Christ and him crucified is to violate the theological integrity of these very truths. So preach truths, yes, but make sure that they are rooted in the truth as it is in Jesus. And, you know, I I know that most of you here are Seventh-day Adventists. Some of you might might be guests. Just just bear with me. I'm I'm doing some talking to my my Adventist brothers and sisters, but maybe you've heard the charge before from non-Adventists that like, well, they have all these beliefs, they have all these teachings, but they're not they're not founded in the Bible. They just come from Ellen White, or they just come from this writer, or they just come from this place. You know, the easiest way to combat that type of mindset is to make sure that any Bible study you give, any sermon that you preach, that it is rooted and grounded in Christ and from the Bible. And, and, and I, I, I do believe that that is where these truths come from. So yes, preach truths, but make sure they are rooted in the truth as it is in Jesus. You know, as Adventists, what are we known for? Or what do we want to be known for? Are we to be merely known as the people who worship on a certain day or eat a certain way or understand prophecy a certain way? Or should we be known as the people who uphold Jesus above all else? That's what I wanna be known for. When people ask us what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist, what do you believe? There are a hundred different answers that we could give but I think that there's only one answer that we should give. Ellen White reiterated this in 1898 when she wrote, hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel. This is our message, our argument, our doctrine, our warning to the impenitent, our encouragement for the sorrowing, the hope for every believer, Christ. We have one truly fundamental belief, one true doctrine, one central truth, and that is the gospel, Christ crucified. God is love. Anything else we believe or uphold as truth must be logically, doctrinally, and theologically rooted in that central truth, but never, never, never contrary to it. 
Maybe you've noticed that these quotes I've shared came later in Ellen White's life. Her understanding grew as her relationship with Jesus deepened. And I pray that we all have an experience like that. And it was in her later years when the brethren chased her off and and in their minds, really what they were doing was imprisoning her in Australia. Um, But it was during those later years that she published her best works on grace and justification by faith. Adventism's early days, though, they were full of missing the point, not keeping the main thing the main thing. For instance, in 1876, another of the church's founders and Ellen's husband, James White, he commissioned a painting to be used for evangelistic purposes. He was strongly convicted that it conveyed a, quote, vivid portrayal of the plan of salvation. And here's, here's the picture. It's a beautiful picture. It's a striking picture entitled The Way of Life. The Way of Life. And as you can see, the cro- Christ on the cross does not seem to be the main attraction here, right? If you're honest with yourself, you can probably admit that when you first saw this image, your eyes were first drawn to the law tree as opposed to Jesus, And that's okay to admit, because that was the artist's initial intentions. Though the cross is evident, it doesn't stand out as prominently as the law does. But as James White grew in his walk with Christ, he became increasingly uncomfortable with this imagery, and more specifically, what it might convey to others. And in 1880, he sent his wife, Ellen, a letter stating, I have a sketch, a new picture, entitled, Behold the Lamb of God. This differs from the way of life and these particulars. The law tree is removed. Christ on the cross is made larger and placed in the center. And he continued in the letter, claiming that he believed there was a theological crisis within the midst of, of early Adventism and its law-centered focus. His concern was with how the initial painting was being conveyed to the public evangelistically. He was like, how are people viewing us as Adventists and what we believe, what we preach, what we live for? You see, James White understood that there is a deep connection between legalism and the impulse to control. In early 1881, James White had begun to analyze the dangerous direction that the church that he loved so much seemed to be unconsciously pursuing. He believed that this crisis could only be averted in one way. He said that the glorious subject of redemption should have long ago been presented more fully to the church. And when when he says that, when he says the church, he's talking about specifically Seventh-day Adventists. And so, In the February 1881 release of the Review and Herald, he wrote that, quote, our people, Seventh-day Adventists, need the gospel. The plan of salvation needs to be made more prominent. He wrote that Adventist preachers should be urged to preach Christ more. He went on to say that among some Adventists, there was an unutterable yearning of the soul for Christ. And he, 
James said that he was amongst that number. You see, James White knew all the doctrine. He could present all of the church's teachings in a variety of ways. If you've ever read any of James White's sermons, you know that that man knew the Bible backwards and forwards. I I personally believe that he had much of it memorized. Yet he believed that there was a crisis because the way Adventist preachers and Bible workers were at that time presenting things was, in his own words, nearly all theory, dwelling upon the law and the prophets, the nature and the destiny of man, and the messages. What he's talking about there, the three angels' messages, Revelation 14. While destitute to an alarming degree of an indwelling Christ. He, he seems flabbergasted, a bit confused. He's like, how can people be preaching out of the book of Revelation, which the Greek word is apocalypsis. It literally translates as revealing or unveiling. The title of the book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. How can people preach from this book and leave Christ out of it? Now, to be clear, he wasn't saying that there was anything wrong with any of these doctrines. There's nothing wrong with preaching the prophets, with preaching the messages, the nature and destiny of man. But instead, it was how they were being presented, how the truth was being shared. In other words, the common Adventist preaching at the time was full of truth while lacking focus on the greatest truth. And after James White died, the Adventist Review ran an article in his memory. And it tells us what he spent the last few months of his life doing. As all will remember, wherever he preached the past few months, he dwelt largely upon faith in Christ and the boundless love of God. But then, in 1883, Ellen White commissioned a new painting based on the request of her late husband that could be used as an evangelistic tool. It was entitled, Christ, the Way of Life. The contrast between the two images is staggering. It's impossible to miss. The law of God is still there, but you notice it's, it's pushed to the back, to the left corner. It's depicted as Mount Sinai with dark clouds and thunderings and lightnings because as Paul calls it, the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, but there is no saving power within it. This, dear friends, is the progression of Adventism. This is the progression of of truth. This is a moving from many truths that all had the same prominence to one great truth, one great pillar, one fundamental belief that all of the other truths clustered around. This is what it looks like to be a good steward of truth, growing in your relationship with Jesus, admitting where maybe you didn't full things clearly, a willingness to make changes when God is giving you that conviction. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul speaks of those who have no hope. Those who've had their understanding darkened and their hearts blinded. 
by sin and by legalism. But then he speaks of those that he has taught who know the truth. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, may we not just be believers of truth, but also teachers of it. May we always keep the main thing as the main thing. May we never make mountains out of molehills. And as we share the truth as it is in Jesus, may we follow the Spirit's command and always speak it in love. That's Ephesians 4.15. As we strive to be good stewards of the truth, God will give us divine appointments. God will send opportunities our way to share. And when people ask what we believe, may we always lead with the good news, the gospel truth that God is love and that it was conveyed to us through Christ on the cross. When we are questioned about the reason for our hope, may we heed Peter's advice and be ready and may our answer be the same as Paul's. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything else that I believe, everything else that I hold to be true, everything else that I know to be from God is rooted and connected to this great truth. Because, dear friends, hanging upon the cross, Jesus was the gospel. This is our message, our argument, our doctrine, our warning to the impenitent, our encouragement for the sorrowing, the hope for every believer. So here is your homework, dear friends. I want you to spend some time each day this week and read these verses. Go ahead, get out your phone or get out a a, pen and paper, write these verses down. Take a picture of these. This is your homework. Just take a little bit of time each day and read these verses. They say, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Even if you can only read these just briefly, once a day. Do it. Spend some time this week basking in the truth of the gospel. Thank God for justification by faith and the freedom that Jesus has brought you. Be a good steward of truth to others, but also to yourself. Before we have our closing prayer, I'm going to invite David Hansen to come forward to stand at the foot of the steps. He's our elder in charge for today. And after the benediction, you who wish to be dismissed can can do so. I, I know that there is a potluck meal waiting for you. But if there's anybody here that has any 
special requests, any urgent needs. You, you, you just, you need some prayer. You need to give something to God. Or maybe you have some tremendous praises that you wanna lift up to God and you wanna you want share what God has been doing. Then David will be down there. And after I have the benediction, I'll step down here. We'd love to speak with you. We'd love to pray with you and lift your praises, lift your petitions up to the throne of grace. Let us pray. Our loving, gracious, heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for truth. Lord, there is so much truth in regards to you and your work. There is so much that we know, but there's still so much to be uncovered. But Lord, may we always uphold the greatest truth, this central truth, as it is in Jesus. And let there be a trickle-down effect to any other belief, any other doctrine, anything else that we call truth, may it always be connected to the truth of the good news, the truth of the gospel. And may we as a people, as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, be known as not just people who know their Bible, not just people who respect their Bible and can share from it, not just people who have these many amazing truths that we want to share with the world, but may we also be people who believe these truths because they are outcroppings of the truth of Jesus. May that be what we are known for. Lord, give us opportunities to share. Give us opportunities to be good stewards of truth. Give us divine appointments. Give us your spirit that we may speak the right words. But Lord, also remind us, don't allow us to forget to be good stewards of the truth to ourselves. Lord, I pray as we go through this week and we spend some time reflecting upon, meditating on Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, I pray that you would give each one of us a blessing because of it, that we would be brought into a place a state of worship, that we would believe that you have set us free and that we would know that you love us. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen and amen.